If you've got a Bible, and you do because there's one in the pew rack in front of you, um, look at Mark 12, which is 15... 74. In the pew Bible. While the pages are flipping, um, in 11... Uh, 20 through till the end of 11 there. Um, the, Jesus curses this fig tree, which is supposed to be related to the temple, showing that God was actually going to destroy the second temple. He'd already destroyed the first temple a long time before that because of its corruption. This one had now been rebuilt and come to that same point of corruption to where he was going to—his glory was going to leave the temple, and the temple was actually going to be judged and destroyed just like this fig tree was going to be cursed. And um, people get, got a little mad about that. And so he, he told this story in chapter 12 to make them even matter. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it and dug a pit from the wall for the wine press and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At the harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and this one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and then the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? Now listen to this. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they, then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. If you've been coming to church recently here, um, you already know that I preached last week on that passage. And so if you want to hear the sort of exposition of that passage, I would encourage you to go to the internet and listen to it. It's there. <clears throat> this morning I want to get at some things I just didn't have time to get at last week. Um, a few years ago, have you ever been on the Ride the Ducks, the Ride the Ducks ride up in, in the Dells, right? Well, apparently those things are everywhere. Um, there's a, a comp the largest private family entertainment company in the country is a company called Hurchin Family Entertainment. And they, they, they're the people who own Dolly Land or something down there in Branson or wherever that is. Dollyville, Wood? Dolly Wood, sorry. And, um, yeah, sorry, I didn't think I'd get corrected in Madison on that one. Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Um, got one person from Tennessee. Okay, uh, so <clears throat> they had a version of that ride in the Delaware River. And um, the CEO of the company was just about to get on a plane, and he got a text that um, one of these ride the duck boats, this one actually, um, had been hit and run over by a barge being pushed by a tugboat in the Delaware River. Everybody who was on the boat was in the water. Um, they didn't know who was accounted for or who wasn't accounted for. Um, as information came out, they what happened— what was found out is that there were two people who weren't accounted for and were assumed dead, both of them children. 
And um, you can just imagine the sort of firestorm around this. Um, the, of course, the press just went at it, right? The carelessness and, you know, these, these tourist organizations are just, they get out there, they, you know, they get in these lanes where shipping is happening and people get killed. It's just, you know, um, and then also regulators came in and said, listen, if you want to start these rides back up again, you're going to have to do this, 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 and this. And, you know, you're going to have to be safer and you need to, you need to take care of your clients and all this kind of stuff, right? Well, that's pretty reasonable, right? I mean, some people get killed on a ride at, an, at like an amusement park or a, a family thing. I mean, children are killed. It's a huge personal tragedy. It makes sense that the news would cover it, right? And it makes sense that regulators would do something about it, right? Now, one of the things that neither the news media nor the regulators knew was that there was an ongoing criminal investigation by the feds, which had found out that um, A— the Ride the Ducks boat was 100 feet from shore and anchored and not moving when it was run over by the barge, which is interesting because most tugboat barge shipping lanes aren't 100 feet from shore. Then they found out that um, it was the captain's first time running the, that barge push, and they found out that for 21 or 27 minutes, he had been on his cell phone just before and during the moment when they had ran over the Ride the Ducks boat. The, re the reality is, is that the Ride the Ducks people had nothing to do with being run over by the barge. Nothing. But people made some what you would think would be pretty standard assumptions, right? I mean, barges go the same place in every river, every time. I mean, shipping lanes are very well planned. I mean, it, it had to have been some college kid driving this boat as a summer job that got these people killed. I mean, that's— Seems like a pretty reasonable assumption. Now, here's the reason I bring that up. There are lots of passages of Scripture and lots of points in Scripture that it's very easy to just assume they don't really apply to you or to just assume that you know immediately the way they apply to you or to just read over them or whatever. And one of the things that I think is important to recognize in this particular passage is that there are some things here that, that we don't always flesh out by ourselves. That when Jesus says, <clears throat> the stone that the builders rejected, God himself is making the chief cornerstone. And that that is a place quoted not just here, but in a number of other places in Scripture, as we'll see in just a minute. This is a very important point that frames what the gospel means, what the kingdom of God is, how Jesus is brought— all that stuff is right in this verse, and it's just so easy to be like, yep, still in the village, God likes Jesus. We get it, right? So what I want to do for the next couple of minutes is I want to flesh out this statement. The stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone or the capstone. And I want to focus on the positive, because last week I focused on the negative side of that message, Right? That, listen, you can, you can judge however you want, but God is going to reverse that judgment to the judgment he's got. And if we try to push down his truth and his judgment, we are going to end up judged. That's the first line of that verse. But the second line brings out some really exciting things. I mean, think about this. Why does the next verse say, the Lord has done this and what? It's marvelous in our eyes. We're in awe at this thing God has done. Like, most people don't, don't just be like, you know, God could judge me. That's fantastic. There's something else here that people can marvel at, that you could marvel at. 
Okay, so I want to look at the general point, and then I want to look at one point for skeptics and one point for religious people. So first, the main point is that God is building a living temple. God is, ab- is about to judge this physical temple. It was about to be destroyed. But the good news is, is that God isn't destroying the temple so that there would be nothing, but that in destroying the temple, he was going to create a new temple that would surpass it and replace it and be better than the last temple. And it is going to be an amazing temple. And that Jesus will be the cornerstone, the founding block that will set the course for that whole new, and be the basis for the whole new temple. Um, just, a, just a few chapters later, as you get after Jesus dies and raises from the dead, and then um, Peter ends up going out, and he starts preaching for the first time that Jesus saves people from their sins. Like he, by believing in him, we can be made right with God, right? <clears throat> and he says this in, in Acts 4. So he's just walked up to this guy who was a crippled beggar, and he said, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. And it puts the religious people in kind of a frenzy because they just got rid of Jesus, <laughs> who was going around healing people and getting all kinds of credibility from it. And now they just got done killing him. And now all of a sudden, boom, here's this guy, an, a, a fisherman. Yeah, they, we just got rid of the carpenter guy. Now there's a fisherman that thinks he's a religious expert. This is, I mean, this is nutty. So they pull him aside and they're like, listen, you can't be doing this kind of stuff. I mean, what, what happened anyway? And so this is Peter's answer. He says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, the religious leaders, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for the act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone the builders rejected. That's not what he says, is it? He gets, he, he's a little more pointed than that. The stone you builders rejected that has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven by which given to men by which we must be saved. Right? It's pretty straightforward. But you see, all of a sudden, the church is just getting off the ground, and Peter already knows this is a foundation. That Jesus is the cornerstone of this new living temple that God is creating. And I think it's really easy for us not to catch the full context of this, because we don't, most of us don't know our Old Testaments, right? When was the last time you sat down and said, you know what? I'm not going to watch TV. You know, let, baby, put Netflix away. Let's get out the Bible. Let's read the Old Testament. And let's start with the law. Let's go to like the second half of Exodus and read through that and into Leviticus, because I think that is going to make for a sexy evening. I, re- I mean, it's going to be good. I mean, you just don't do that, right? People, so you know, we don't know. Consequently, we don't get the significance of things. You see, the New Testament is written to people who knew, who knew their Old Testaments. And, were, and picked up these kinds of things. You see, the, the tabernacle, which preceded the temple, was the place God set up by which a perfectly holy God could meet with sinful, rebellious, self-centered, self-righteous people. P- two beings that were created for each other, the human beings created for the uncreated God, but who were by action, they were naturally made to be one, but by action were enemies, and by choice of identity were enemies. How were they to be brought back together? Well, God came up with this thing called the tabernacle that 
on the means or the parameters God set up, human beings could come to him. And they could meet again. And so the Israelite nation had the tabernacle in the middle, and three tribes lived on one side, three tribes lived on one side. There were three tribes, and the tabernacle was in the middle, and it was the place where God would meet with people. And then when they came to Jerusalem, and that was the center of this nation, the, tab- the, the temple was built by Solomon to be the meeting place between God's people and God. And when Solomon um, dedicated the temple— and people were all busy with the religious activities, God's glory came down and stopped everything. Because God's glory was there. And God met with his people. It was the only place in the world where this could happen like this. Within these parameters where sinful, self-righteous people who were at enmity with God could meet with God. Where it wouldn't bring judgment, but it would bring love. I mean, it, it could, the two could come together. But as time went on, the system of the temple, the parameters God set up and handed off to these people called priests, got more and more and more and more corrupt. To the point where people started to act like there was something about the building itself that brought God, rather than God blessing the building and coming to it voluntarily because of what was going to happen there. And so he said, listen, I'll teach you a lesson about this if I have to. And so he sends all the people into exile— 600 miles away, and he has the first temple absolutely obliterated and destroyed. One of the most beautiful pieces of architecture, buildings of the ancient world, completely destroyed. God does not care how much hammered gold is in a place. It's irrelevant. It is, the, it is the place he meets with people. And then he says in the book of Ezekiel, after he had allowed the temple to be destroyed, he says, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Now think about that. What God is saying is, I just, yeah, I destroyed the temple, but I was still with my people. That when God sent his people into exile to that community that believed him and was being disciplined in another country— In slavery, God said, I was still among them, and I was a sanctuary. I was a temple. I still met with them in a a sort of way, even when there wasn't a temple. Then finally, he lets them come back, and what do they do? They finally build a second temple, and God makes that possible. But what happens 400 years later? It's just a repeat. It's just a repeat. It's just as corrupt as the last one. And God finally has bring together the fullness of time where he's done with the localized temple. He's done with it. So that, so that a voice on the streets of Jerusalem could come forward and say this, destroy this temple and I will build it again in three days. And then John says this. He says, Jesus was not speaking of the building, but of his own body. That Jesus in himself would be forever now the meeting place of sinful men and women who are at enmity with God because of our self-righteousness and our self-centeredness. There is a meeting place forever, not local, where God would meet with people that was completely unrestricted and could go to every corner of the world immediately because it no longer required the kind of dance that the physical temple required. Now, that's not it. Because when you finally get to the end, to how heaven is described in the end, is there a temple in heaven? There's not a temple in heaven. 
John says at the very end of the Bible, in, the, in, this, in this revelation of glory, he says, the 12 gates were, 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 tw- were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. Look, so he's, he's just spent a number of chapters, an, or a, a, a pretty good bit of space, describing all the built things in the city of God. The wall and the, and the gates, and it's all enormously constructed, incredibly beautiful, and huge. And so you go, now he's coming to the crowning achievement. He'll talk about the temple in the city of God. That will be the greatest building. It will be the meeting place. No. He says, the great street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But then what does he say? I did not see a temple in that city because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb, that is Jesus, are its temple. Now, that's pretty cool, but it actually goes a step further than that. And this is the important part for today. And that is this, that when it says that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, what that presumes is that God is building a building and Jesus isn't the whole building. This is how Peter says it in 1 Peter. And notice he quotes this verse twice in this passage, okay? So he's making an intentional connection with this promise and claim. He says this, As you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone— rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. Remember the son in the parable? The last person, the fi- what was he? He was his only son whom he loved, right? The living stone chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, so what's the scriptural basis for this claim that we are the stones built on top of Jesus? Those who believe from every tribe, every nation, every place throughout history, we are a temple being built on this cornerstone. What's the scriptural backing for that? This. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and those who trust in him will never be put to shame. Then he says this, Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, what? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the capstone. I'm going to—now, what I want to do is, I want to say, now, what does that mean? What does that mean for the skeptically minded? What does that mean for the religiously minded? Okay? So, the first is this. That the temple is relevant, both universally and personally. The temple, this idea that Jesus is the foundation of a new temple being built out of all believing human beings, is an incredibly relevant concept, precisely when the more skeptically minded would say it couldn't be more irrelevant. Now, there's one thing you've got to get straight before you can do anything here, and that is, is relevant— an objective or subjective category. Because most people, if you say, hey, is that relevant? People will answer that on the basis of their tastes. Whether they like it, whether they're entertained by it, whether they connect with it. But that, that's not what relevant means. Relevant simply means, is it logically germane to the—germane's not clear, is it? It's, it, does it? Does it logically relate? Does it matter? So, for example, um, the equation up in the corner is a—, a, a complexified version of the gravity constant, how you can measure gravitational forces between two bodies. The other is a picture from the Charlie Bit My Finger video on YouTube, the international phenomenon. Right? Now, if I was to say, what is more fundamentally relevant to your life? 
if I hadn't said what I've already said, people might say the Charlie video because they've seen it four times. And they know, and, they, and, and if somebody said in the, out there, Charlie bit my finger, people would go, oh, I know what you're talking about. That's the, right? In fact, last night when I got the name that, that Brandon Ellis, Brandon Adesh, Ellis' new son, his name is Charles, I like, I put that in the email. Maybe we'll have a video from your house, right? But the fact is, the thing that is actually much more relevant to your life is the gravitational constant that keeps you hooked to the earth. And it creates a predictable relationship between bodies of masses. That's much more relevant. Now, you might not think in those terms, but you, what you need to understand is relevance is not a subjective category. Relevance is an objective category. It is true or false, whether you like it or not, whether you believe in it or not. Your tastes and relevance are not the same thing. So, why can I then turn around and say that the, Jesus being the living temple is relevant for the skeptic? Here's why. Because if, if, you, if you talk to—I I think a skeptical person would say something like this. Okay, Nick, you're talking about a passage where Jesus, this sort of ancient carpenter fellow, goes to a temple in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago in which animals are constantly being sacrificed by priests to appease some god that they're afraid of. Now— <clears throat> Jesus did not go there to tell those people that the whole idea of sacrificing animals was silly. He went to reform what he considered to be religious and social injustices. I mean, if he had really been God, wouldn't he have gone and said, all of this is just silly? I mean, surely, as modern, scientifically-minded people, we can see that this is nutty. I mean— He's essentially implicitly condoning the most primitive superstitious act that human beings were ever a part of. How can this be relevant? Well, here's, here's, a, here's one answer. Well, you can actually ask empirically the question, is Jesus as the living temple relevant? By asking, what's happened with the message of Jesus being the living temple? And what you'll, what you'll see by, I think, any fair reading of history is, is that Jesus, the living temple— has been the most compelling idea in the history of humanity. Period. Full stop. No exceptions. Now, it would be really interesting to have a two-hour argument over coffee about whether the idea of modernity um, challenges it. I, I really wish I could go on a 20-minute excursus on this right now, but what you need to understand is modernity is itself a child of Christianity. Um, I would, I, I, if, you, if you think that's crazy, I'd really encourage you to read the book by Rodney Stark called The Victory of Reason where he demonstrates most of what flowed out of the West and didn't flow out of anywhere else in the world, flowed out of the West because of the roots of Christianity and how they affected our thinking about economic science and so on. Okay? Rodney Stark's Victory of Reason. Now, th think about it this way. <clears throat> if you think about the great religions of the world, um, well, okay, F first, I need to show you two things, okay? I want to show you two videos, because here's what you need to understand. Um, sometimes in Madison, you can feel like as Christians, the culture is pushing in on us. But what you need to understand is around the world, the message of Jesus is exploding. Okay, so I want to show you two videos. One um, is a video of a pastor from Togo who was in this church last week. And the other is um, a, a couple named the Hellwigs who go to church here. So watch these and I'm going to kind of go from there. If they work. Okay, I'm ready. 
So this is Joseph. Okay. Um, this is Pastor Joe from Togo, West Africa. In West Africa, especially Togo, we do speak French. It's in really but close I, to what he I says. learn also to speak English, and I'm a pastor. I have my church. I'm a founder of ministry called International Ministry under the hand of God, House of Prayer and Worship. Stick with him, I know In you're born. Togo, Stick actually, with him. we are experiencing, uh, it's getting to about 10 years now, we are experiencing a powerful move of God. Uh, you could see people running to God, so many, many miracles, people get healed, people get delivered, people get filled by the power of the Holy Ghost. Last two weeks ago, okay, I was having two weeks fasting and prayer in my church and they brought a woman, the, 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 the woman had her, her leg caught and when her we were praying, suddenly the power of the Lord just came and the left come back so we 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 experienced so many 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 things and uh, uh, i just want to let you know that today jesus christ still the same yesterday did you hear that the woman's leg was cut off and they prayed and her leg grew back he saw that in person two weeks ago in togo Okay, the next, this next one is the, the Hellwigs. There are a couple from this church. Hi, we're the Hellwigs, and we just got back from a trip to San Pedro Sula, Honduras, which according to Time Magazine is the most dangerous city in the Western Hemisphere. Laura and I have been sponsoring Children Through Compassion International for about four years, and recently we had read the book Radical, and after praying about it, we thought that it was time that we just go and experience this for ourselves. What we got to experience was 36 people from the United States going down to Honduras um, to work with the body believers there. We got to see the church coming together with the common goal of rescuing children from poverty, um, converting them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and a whole generation of victims um, rising up to become um, strong believers and um, have the desire to share the gospel with others, um, then in turn rescuing the next generation. Um, our experience was amazing, it was heartbreaking, um, but it's exciting to see what God is doing in other parts of the world. One of the things that's really important to recognize, so you heard the first guy, he's like, yeah, so her leg was cut off, we pray it came back. And then the Hellwigs have been part of Compassion International, which is a global organization rescuing children from poverty, building sustainable situations economically and for education so that thousands and thousands of children born into abject poverty who would otherwise die live and begin to become contributors to their country and their region coming out of poverty. There, there is a fundamental empirical fact of the relevance of Jesus the temple. Because Jesus the temple, through faith, creates these living stones who affect the world in ways that are not trumpeted. But listen— this, you, we, we should expect that. We should not expect our fair share of press. The stone the builders rejected becomes the cornerstone. Rejection is part and parcel of the whole gig, friends. This stuff is happening every day, everywhere. You just don't, we don't hear about it, it's, and that's okay. Now, one of the other things to recognize is if, if you think about the five major religions of the world— and think about where their center of gravity started and where their center of gravity still is. Okay, now this is not an argument as to whether or not they're true or false. This is simply an argument about relevance. That's all it is. 
Okay, so don't get too, like, upset. Um, <clears throat> for example, Hinduism. Hinduism began as an Indian phenomenon, right? And where is the center of gravity of Hinduism still to this day? After 3,000 years. India. Virtually nowhere else, right? Um, Buddhism. Very similar. It's a South Asian phenomenon. Where is its center of gravity still today? South Asia. Islam. Now, Islam is a little tougher because they've got some conquered areas, right? It, the, the Islam spreads a little differently than Hinduism, for example, or definitely than Buddhism. But if you look at the heart or the center of gravity of Islam as a movement, it's still the Middle East. Now, there are more, there are more Muslims in South Asia than in the Middle East, but its center of gravity remains there, and its center of gravity has not gone anywhere they haven't conquered. So, evangelistically, the free flow of ideas that reach human hearts and compel them internally and say, I'm, no, I'm going to believe. That is, the, the message goes out in fragile living stones. It affects hearts, and those hearts voluntarily within their cultures go, yes, yes. That's not really true of Islam, statistically. Islam has spread through conquest. More recently, it spread through immigration and then biological increase where it's immigrated to. But there is not a lot of evidence that Islam has been evangelistically successful in cultures unlike itself. And it's also one of the reasons why historically, when you look at where Islam has gone, it has, in generally speaking, changed the culture. Like you hear a lot of talk about how imperialist Western missionaries went and took over cultures in other places. In some ways, that's true, but never more true than the phenomenon of Islam in the world. That it is a culture. Now, that's not necessarily bad. That might be a great thing. If Islam is true, and Allah is God, and Muhammad is his prophet, and he wants things, God, Allah wants things a certain way, there's nothing inherently wrong with the idea that Islam is a culture, and wherever it goes, it becomes the culture. All I'm saying is, it's different than Christianity in which the fragile message goes out in living stones and freely wins over hearts and minds everywhere in the world. Because think about the history of Christianity. Where was the first center of gravity of Christianity? Jerusalem. Then where? North Africa and the Roman Empire. Then where? Well, in Byzantium and then Eastern and Western Europe. Then where? Well, then in the United States. Then where? And now the global south everywhere. So that there will be more Christians very soon in the global south than in the Western Hemisphere. Korea, South Korea, a much smaller country with much fewer resources, has almost already surpassed the United States in sending missionaries globally. They will send people we won't even dare send people. Because the gospel has captured hearts in that country by the, by the hundreds of thousands, and they have then gone and spread the gospel all over the world. In fact, if you look through the growing body of statistics on this, the population of the global south is nearly 70% Christian. That is Latin America, South Asia, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, if you look at specifically Africa, if you look at the, the statistics on Islam, they track about with biological growth. Christianity's growth in Sub-Saharan Africa has grown radically more than biological growth. Even in wars where lots of Christians have been slaughtered in Sub-Saharan Africa, the percentage of population continues to increase. In fact, in many places where persecution is the worst, Christianity is growing the fastest. Because you can point a gun at somebody, but the truth of the gospel is still compelling. Lead doesn't change that. It's an NPR, not exactly a right-wing news organization, 
said in a study on Christianity in China, some recent surveys have calculated that there could be as many as 100 million Chinese Protestants. That would mean that China has more Christians than Communist Party members, which now number some 75 million. And I'll just tell you what. Um, th the percentage of that number that are more serious Christians than here is a lot higher. I mean, those, those hundred million Christians, most of them are actually quite serious Christians, as opposed to places like America or Europe, where you have high percentages of Christians, but you have a mass amount of nominal Christians who, yeah, I'm from a Christian family, I sort of whatever. The historical, the historical fact in relationship to the relevance of the message of Jesus the temple is that the fact remains. It has been and continues to be, even in the age of modernity, the most compelling idea in the globe. And in some places in the global south, where they have heard the message of secular modernity, and they have heard the message of Christianity, they have chosen Christianity. And, and it's not like they don't want modernity, they don't want technology, but they recognize one is going to have to assimilate the other. One is going to have to be the primary idea, and one is going to have to be the secondary idea. And modernity does great as a secondary idea. It does bad as a primary idea. But no matter how you look at those, the, the empirical fact is, no matter how skeptical you are, a fair reading of history and the present moment is that the message of Jesus the temple, who creates fragile living stones as a temple in the world, reaching out to all peoples in all places of all nations and all languages, has been the most compelling and relevant idea in the history of the world. Period. It's relevant. And therefore, I believe it's worth thinking about. I'm not saying you got to believe it. What I'm just saying is, I think you should take it more seriously than skeptical or cynical people often do. That's all I'm saying. Lastly, and relatively quickly, quickly for those of us who consider ourselves believers or religious people, we are— the, the implication of this, Jesus being the cornerstone and believers being—that means we are the new temple. You are a living stone in the new temple if you are a believer in Jesus. Period. And that is not a voluntary identity. It is, it is part and parcel and irreducible to believing in Jesus and being saved and knowing God. You cannot become one without the other. You are, if you are a believer, a living stone in the unseen, universal, cosmic, glorious temple that is the meeting place of human beings with God that is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, if you remember that from Mark 11. <clears throat> One of the reasons why that's important is that whether we like it or not, we are a new temple and a new priesthood. Whether we like it or not, there is no Christianity without the church. There is no such thing as Christianity without the church. Which is, I know that that is difficult in a culture of expressive individualism. I know that's difficult. Listen, I, I'm, I feel it myself. I, there's lots of people out there who've had bad experiences with church. They've been to boring churches. They've been to churches where they didn't, you know, they got hurt or whatever, and they just go, listen, I'm a Christian but I'm not part of the local church. And, and you might be thinking even right now, Nick, it's fine for you to say that, but you're talking about the universal church. You're not talking about the local church. The fact is, is that Jesus is building this universal temple with everybody who believes in Jesus, whether they go to local churches or not. It is the 
invisible church you're referring to. <clears throat> okay, but you need to understand that every, virtually every New Testament book that references the church at all explicitly claims that there's no, there can be no division between the universal church and the local church. You need to understand that. The idea that you can be part of the universal church and not part of the local church, biblically speaking, if you read through First and Second Timothy and Ephesians and these other New Testament books that talk about what the church is, it is a theological fantasy to believe that you do not have to be in the game to be in the game. <clears throat> um, listen, I want you to understand that I feel the same way as you do about this, okay? I mean, those of you who don't want to be part of the church. Those of you who want to be part of the church, I don't know what's wrong with you. But for those of you who, who feel like you like Jesus, you like the general spirituality, but being deeply part of the local church, committing in love to other concrete human beings, to team up with them with your money and time and effort and life, and to try to accomplish something together in real time and space, in the blood, sweat, tears, of real life does not sound appealing. Listen, I feel the same way as you, okay? Uh, when I was a kid, I grew up in a mainline denomination, and I was bored out of my gourd, okay? I became an altar boy just so that I could make faces and wink at this one cute blonde girl named Jessica Wold that sat about five rows back on the right side, okay? That was how I got through Sundays. When we did go to church, which was not really that often, even though the service was about 42 minutes long, okay? When I went off to college— <clears throat> I went to church virtually every Sunday, and I was frustrated out of my mind, okay? I would sit there. I would go to a secular university all week, and then I would—with professors who have studied for decades and are teaching, and I would go to church, and I would hear a sermon given by somebody that I really thought I could do better. I mean, I was like, I could get up there right now and do better than this. You did not even think about this. You didn't do the hard work. You, I mean, your reflections on Scripture, you just, just reading it. I mean, you, this is a sermon? This is supposed to help me go back to my university and survive and be a living stone? Seriously? And then, I, I'll leave out some parts, but then I eventually I went, I went um, on after that to seminary, and I've been, I've been to some really high-class churches since then. Bigger churches, well-resourced, run by very competent people. And frankly, I just got angry at the established church because they seemed to be only interested in reaching generations older than me. And I was cynical about well-resourced churches. There's all this money, but what is the real impact beyond ourselves? I mean, what percentage of this is going anywhere? Or is this all just funding us? And is that okay? I mean, is that what we're here to do? Or I was despairingly—listen, I've been a pastor now for eight or nine years, and I've led real churches with real people in them. Guess what? It's not easy because people feel like I do about the church. So, what do you do? Well, here, here, here's what. There was, a, there was a watershed moment when I was in college going to that middle church, and I was listening to one of those sermons, and I was like, would somebody please just shoot me? Oh my gosh. I mean, it was, it was terrible. Um, and this is somebody who'd been in the ministry for 20 years, you know? And it was one of those sink or swim moments, like, because I had friends who had stopped going to the church. They stopped going to church altogether because they just didn't like it. And, I, and one of the things I decided, I said, I said, you know what? I'm going to do better than him. Forget this. I'm going to, I, I can't, and it's not that I can sit here and condescendingly say, oh yeah, no, I'm going to become the person I wish was up there. 
That's the goal. I'm not, because, and here's why. Because I had read these passages. I had read 1 Peter 2. And 1 Peter 2 says, you are a living stone, whether you stinking like it or not. This is home. This is your family. This is God's plan for the world. This is a redemptive body of real, actual human beings that if you can't love, you can't love. And if and it, is, it is just pansy talk to go, well, I love the unseen Jesus I can't see, and I love hypothetical Christians that I may someday relate to in heaven when their sinful nature is gone, when I don't have to do anything but just exist. That is not New Testament Christianity. That has no resemblance to New Testament Christianity at all. There is a problem. The church will always be full of selfish, self-centered, self-justifying human beings that are in the slow, excruciatingly slow process of redemption. You're experiencing right now, listening to me. <laughs> but the fact remains, you cannot ignore your identity. And you cannot ignore the fact that the stone the builders rejected will be the capstone. It will be the capstone. And we are going to have to do— Friends, let me— I'm going to take just a few more minutes because it's nice outside and you want to stay in church longer. Um, <laughs> listen, it is—, it is there, there is a choice to be made, okay? There is, a temple is going to be built, and we've got to decide what kind of sub-temple are we going to be in this local church. And I have organized this around— um, J.R.R. Tolkien, an Asian hillbilly building. And listen, it really is from, I think it's from South Korea, so I'm not being racist. It, that's just what it is. And do you see the difference? Um, if you know something about Tolkien's understanding of the elves, all of the buildings where they lived, it was built together with the trees. It was organic. All the, the buildings had this organic life to it, and the two were woven together. Because this temple isn't just a, just a rigid stone. It's fragile. It moves. It's it's elastic because it's a living temple. Whereas if we just do whatever the heck we want, we're more like that second picture. Let's just go to a 1,500-year-old tree that's still alive, maybe 2,000 years old, and let's just build a house on top of it. Boom! That's cool. We'll get pictures on the internet. And kill the living tree you could have been a part of by just— sticking a building on top of it. Friends, if we become bad tenants, if we become the kind of people that are not interested in building a living temple, who are not interested in the people in the world, who we are designed to be a house of prayer that they are invited to, if we lose track of that and lose sight of it, we'll be that picture. High Point Church will be that. And every day, every week, every year, our sinful natures are always pulling us to that. That is what naturally happens everywhere. And in order for us to avoid it, it's gonna, listen, we're going to have to do some hard things. We're going to have to stop doing some things that were great ideas before, but aren't anymore. We're going to have to say no to a lot of good ideas. We're going to have to listen to younger Christians that are going to challenge our establishment mentality because they're going to be looking from the outside a little bit more. They're going to they're call us when we're doing things for ourselves and we're letting go the people on the outskirts of whatever it is we're doing. We're going to have to actually be humbly and deeply holy, rather than just get better at being religious. We are going to have to, remind, to remember that God's relationship of blessing on this building and on this congregation is conditional on what kind of tenants we are in relationship to whether or not we are going to become a house of prayer for all nations. 
And listen, there's plenty of sobering fear in these two passages that we could connect with. But what we need to understand is there is plenty of joy to connect with in these two passages. If we can get in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls and in our groups together and the idea that we were made to be a living temple together in a concrete local church in real space and time with real other people, we'll do this. If we, really, if we believe the gospel in our guts, we will do this. And if we don't, we'll become a funny house on a really old tree. And the life of the tree is totally gone from our midst. But, you know, we're up higher than everybody else, so that's cool. But we'll be dead as nails. And the glory that was supposed to meet people in the temple, it won't meet people in the temple. Father, thank you for your, your grace to us, and we pray, Lord, that, that you, would help, um, you would help this church and each of us individually to recognize how compelling and relevant it is that you are the temple, that we, you are making us into stones, and this is an identity we can never get away from. We can never screw it. We can never get around. And we pray, Father, that we, you would help us to be so inspired by it and so willing to embrace the difficulty of it beyond whatever hurts and pains and fear we have in relationship to it, that we would become in real time, in a real community, what you've created us and redeemed us to be. Pray in Jesus' name. Why don't you rise for the benediction?